Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program where we wander through the world of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have new stories, including BMW will make your iPhone your new car key. We have two interviews. Firstly, we discuss the demise of the Segway, that two-wheeled, technologically advanced device that didn't fit a market. And Alan Zervis tells us about the Volkswagen Golf Type R. And in a sort of quirky news, we again catch up with Brian Smith to talk about just how much space we are giving to parking. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. And you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City, one word. So now let's start the program with the news. The Segway is no more. The two-wheeled device that was launched in 1999 as a personal mobility tool has ceased production. The inventor, Dean Carman, envisaged that it would create a transportation revolution, but it was big and bulky and cost over $5,000 when it first went on the market. Overdrive's transport planner, Brian Smith, summarised its situation. It always struck me as a technological solution looking for a problem and then not finding one and not letting that stop them. I remember the hype about Segway, you know, the idea was going to change the world and really all it was was a replacement for walking, which wasn't really a problem at all for most people. So uh, it ended up being a sort of a quirky toy, really, didn't it? Um, And it didn't really change anything. I'd like to hope the technology can be maybe applied you know, in a more effective way. BMW will become the first car maker to let you use your iPhone as a digital car key. The car owner can also share access across five friends, including a configurable option for young drivers, which restricts top speed, horsepower and maximum radio volume. There's a power reserve so that the car keys will still function for up to five hours if the iPhone turns off due to a low battery. The digital key will be available in 45 countries for a broad range of models if they are manufactured after July 1st, 2020. BMW and Apple also announced a new feature that helps BMW electric vehicles on longer journeys. Apple Max will pick the optimal route based on electric range and the locations of charging stations. It will be first available in the BMW i4 next year. The Jaguar I-Pace, the world's first luxury electric SUV, has a big battery, but it can be slow to charge, particularly at home. The I-Pace has a 90 kilowatt hour battery compared to the current 40 kilowatt hour battery in a Nissan Leaf, which is, of course, a smaller car. Now, with the latest I-Pace, they say that with a three-phase system and a wall box, you can charge the car in eight and a half hours. With a single-phase system and a wall box, it will take 12 and three-quarter hours. In the past, with a single-phase and no wall box, it could take nearly 50 hours. The new model also has self-learning navigation that can show you the nearest available charge stations 
and wireless phone charging, embedded Spotify and Bluetooth for two phones at the same time. And there is remote upgrading so the iPace can get improvements over time. Developments in car racing can often find their way down to on-road production cars, but now Jaguar has shown that the process can go the other way. For road car applications, Jaguar developed the Traffic Sign Recognition System, which uses a stereo camera and image processing software to detect and read road signs to inform drivers of speed limits, temporary speed limits and no overtaking restrictions. Engineers at Jaguar Racing are applying similar principles for a very different purpose, to monitor the battery status of their car and their competitors' race vehicles, and then determine optimum energy strategies. But car racing can still improve the road car. In December 2019, Jaguar managed to get up to 20 kilometres more real-world range from a full charge of their iPace through optimisation of battery management, thermal systems, regenerative braking and all-wheel drive torque distribution. A number of car manufacturers have turned to three-cylinder engines for their small vehicles, typically of one-litre capacity. Now Toyota is replacing the four-cylinder in its small sedan, the Yaris, with a three-cylinder, but it is of 1.5-litre capacity. This fourth generation of the Yaris is set to be launched in Australia in August this year with hybrid and petrol models. The petrol model has a 10% increase in power to 88 kilowatts, while fuel economy, when driven through a CVT gearbox, is just 4.9 litres per 100 kilometres, an improvement of at least 15%, even compared to the discontinued 1.3 litre engine. The hybrid produces a combined 85 kilowatts of power and fuel economy of 3.3 litres per 100 kilometres. And their new front row centre airbag deploys between the driver and passenger so, among other things, they don't butt heads inside crashes. And that has been the news. Joining me on the line is Brian Smith. Brian Segway has packed it in. They're stopping manufacturing. Does that surprise you? Look, it doesn't, David. It always struck me as uh, a technological solution looking for a problem and then not finding one and not letting that stop them. I remember the hype about Segway, you know, the idea was going to change the world. And really all it was was a replacement for walking, which wasn't really a problem at all for most people. So uh, it ended up being a sort of a quirky toy, really, didn't it? Um, And it didn't really change anything. Uh, It suffered a little from the... um, Dalek problem of, uh, you know, yes. challenged by stairs, but no surprise, I guess, David. I'd like to hope the technology can be maybe applied in a more effective way. They were big and lumpy, really. They weighed, what, 60 kilograms or more. Oh, huge. That's hardly something that you can easily stack it or put it in the car or put it in the boot of a car so you could perhaps, if you had a kilometre or more that you had struggled walking with, you could use it. But it just wasn't that. Did you ever ride one, David? You know, I didn't. Neither did I. It was one of those things, if you wanted to ride one, you either had to commit to a huge cost and, and you know, commit to being a Segway person, or you went out to some, I don't know, uh, Sydney Olympic Park or somewhere like that where for tourists they'd let you have a ride around on one. And that sort of summed up, I think, its impact on the world that 
I really never saw them in the city beyond being ridden maybe by a security guard every now and then in an airport or tourists tootling slowly around, you know, a park getting an adventure, an experience they might not normally have. Police use them a bit, but do you chase someone on it? Do you start manoeuvring in and out of the public on a footpath if you have one of the things? Oh, I thought that gave them the opportunity just to, to be seen or to stand a little higher than the than the crowd. It didn't seem to me a very... Well, well look, yeah, what problem was it trying to solve, though? It was a bit of clever technology that you kind of went, wow, look at that. It can The gyros can balance a two-wheel device, but it really didn't solve any problems. I, I, they tried to apply it to wheelchair technology and, it, and again ended up with this massively bulky device that uh, I guess was a bit of a challenge for anyone to um, put into you know, a vehicle or a car or a train or anything like that. I don't think wheelchairs necessarily their biggest problem was to get off four wheels onto two. Their wheelchairs were things like stairs and others. So I think that perhaps I think we did a story on it, and they made some of the wheelchairs look a bit sexy, a bit like Elon Musk and the spacesuits that he's got his space people wearing. They no longer look like Bibbidon, the Matt Michelin man. They look like something a bit more sexy, but I always thought wheelchairs looked like the old idea of of uh, Forrest Gump wearing the calipers. They look very mechanical. Yep, yep. Maybe we needed to, to sex them up a bit. The other irony, of course, of the Segway was that uh, it killed the head of the Segway. Yes. Jimmy Hesselden, he was about 62. He was testing them in the off-road situation and went over a cliff and into the water and died. Maybe we do need technology. You and I have talked about this, that perhaps we need to be bringing back things like the rickshaw, where you can get a covered thing and maybe offer a bit of power yourself to get shortish distances, but not replacing a 100-metre walk. We talk often about the third speed in cities, don't we, David, where you know you have walking on the footpath, you have sort of vehicles driving around on the road, and increasingly, you're seeing devices like scooters and bicycles and e-bikes starting to to emerge, and they don't fit terribly well in either place. You certainly don't want them, because of their weight and speed differential, to be sharing the footpath with pedestrians, and, and it may not be all that safe to have them driving around on the road with cars. So there is this thinking that you, you need this space for the third speed, that, um, you know, a zone where scooters and cyclists and safely move around and so you know something like the Segway at least presents that sort of transitional mode I suppose and so yeah but certainly I think there is a need for thinking about um, what people call first and last mile I think mile is pretty easy to walk right yes but not for everyone but but I think it you need that sort of intermediate one to sort of five kilometer distance that it can help you. So, you know, an e-bike, a bicycle can help you go that little bit further. And so if you're living fairly close to the city but or where you want to get to, but beyond walking distance and having facilities that can encourage you or allow you to effectively use a mode like a scooter, a bike or a Segway is a good idea, I think. We'll be talking about the design of urban areas and street systems, and I think that might well be a very big issue to do that. You're listening to Overdrive. 
Well, I've been driving a couple of hot hatches. Well, one warmish sort of hatch and one very hot one. The warmish one was the Honda Civic RS. The other was the Renault Megane RS Trophy. Now, the fact that they both have RS doesn't mean that they are directly comparable. One is, as I say, warmish. One is very hot. But while I was thinking about it, along came our friend Alan Service. In a rather nice-looking little blue vehicle, Alan joins us on the line now to tell us about it. Alan, that car did look special. What was so special about the paintwork? Uh, thanks, David. Uh, yeah, the paintwork is a $350 option, but it's hand-done, so it's not done by a robot. They take it off the uh, product line to a separate place and give it a hand spray. We are talking about what car? The Volkswagen Golf R. Now, Volkswagen's hot hatches have been around for quite some time. Does this live up to the expectation? Well, everyone's probably heard of the Golf GTI, and that's been a favourite for, what, 40 years or so. This one is the even hotter version, and it's got all-wheel drive, drive modes, a whole lot of other stuff that makes it go from 0 to 100 in 4.8 seconds. So, Alan, does it have a hotter engine, or is it just the technology around it? It does have a, a slightly hotter engine. We're talking just over 200 kilowatts. But you've got to keep in mind that this is just a small four-door family hatch. 200 kilowatts is a lot of power. It is a lot of power, and it really needs the all-wheel drive to make that really useful because under normal circumstances, you just sit there, no matter how clever the car is, spinning the front wheels even with traction control. So it's got plenty of power, but did it handle well? It handled extremely well, David, and not only that, it's got drive modes, and the drive modes change the active suspension, so it's got several different modes for that, but there's also one that you can program yourself, so you can have the steering, the suspension, the throttle, the transmission set to your own personal preferences, so you might like light steering, but you might like really tight suspension. Now, you and I actually prefer a uh, more comfortable ride, but there are some out there that like to have their bits jiggled around quite a lot. I find that a bit undesirable. You found it around the city. How how well did it cope in the urban environment? I've got to be honest, I left it in comfort mode most of the time. And comfort mode makes the suspension quite soft, relatively speaking, and the steering very, very easy. So it felt really more like a like some kind of luxury car. It really was quite extraordinary. What are they worth? This is a special edition one, so we're talking about 57000 as opposed to 55000 and some change. So there's a couple of grand in it. For that, you get extras, things that you and I probably wouldn't really care much about. Uh, the trim is uh, carbon fibre and so forth, with carbon fibre in the seats. Doesn't that make it rather hard on the old bot? One would think, but it seems to be some kind of woven fabric that felt more like Kevlar than carbon fibre, but uh, I'm sure they meant the carbon fibre effect. So what sort of other things did it have? The 19-inch wheels are unique to Golf R and they're black Pretoria alloy wheels. And the upholstery I was talking about is called Carbon Napper, but it's also got gloss black mirrors and a premium Dynaudio sound system. So the... Uh, the full specs on the engine is 213 kilowatts and 380 newton meters. And it's also got a seven speed DSG wet clutch transmission. And the wet clutch bit is important because that's the thing that Volkswagen got right. The dry clutch one is the one they had trouble with. 50 
$7,000, not bad. I mean, you look back at times when the first WRXs or from Subaru came out, they were even back then $60,000 or $70,000. We've done well to package really good technology into something that is not super expensive. It's not super expensive for what it is. How many other cars can you get that will do that zero to 100 time with that amount of stuff in it? You know, it's air conditioning, electric windows. It is, in fact, something that you could live with daily, whereas a $300,000 supercar is not quite so easy to live with. It has both the benefits of great performance, but also practicality. You say it's a four-door little sedan. And there's plenty of room in the back too, David. So if you were to take a couple of friends on a weekend away or just you and your other half, there's plenty of room in the back for bags, you know, blankets and, and pillows and so forth. It really is most things to most people because you can drive it very, very sedately if you want to. But if you did want to take it to a track on the weekend and shred those tyres, well, it can do that too. Taking them to track days is the only way you are going to enjoy the full capability of these types of machines. Well, you and I have been on many a launch where we've sat in cars that are certainly much more capable of what a public road will allow them to do. And we've often remarked that, you know, look, you can only get to 100 or 110 and then you've got to take your foot off the accelerator or you get your uh, license taken away. Second gear, basically. Yeah, well, some of them first gear, you know, it's really quite uh, quite astounding. The shifts are beautifully smooth in uh, this car with this transmission in sports mode. Uh, they're very, very quick. But the second you start to sink the boot in, your fuel economy plummets. Alan, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure as always, David. Thank you. And that's Alan Service from Gay Carboys talking about the Volkswagen Golf R, the high-performance all-wheel drive, which I think is one of the key elements that it has to help get that power to the ground. You're listening to Overdrive. And at the end of the program on Overdrive, we're talking to Brian Smith, perhaps a sort of quirky, no, perhaps a little bit more serious subject. Brian, you have a thought about land use. One of the things that we note in cities is the amount of space taken up by car parking. And it's an essential problem. It affects cities and uh, it can have uh, quite an impact. So um, we were talking here about what cities seem to have the greatest proportions of land dedicated to parking. And interesting, I saw some figures from Seattle, a bit of a transport study, that uh, within the CBD it found that 42% of land in the CBD is dedicated to parking. And this is in a city where 73% of the residents say there's not enough parking available. And uh, yet the peak occupancy of that parking is, is less than 70%. Oh. Closer to home, Christchurch in New Zealand, a bit of an analysis of that city post-earthquake, mind you, that almost 13% of the land is taken up by off-street parking and at the moment often in gravel plots, but only 23% of the land is buildings. And so, you know, the rest is basically roads and a little bit of open space, but parking. So, so what do we do, David, about this incredible amount of space that we dedicate to car parking. I'm pretty sure that most people listening would not have thought that you could have a city where 
you know, almost a half of the space is dedicated to parking cars. There's, there's a lot of things that may happen. Autonomous vehicles may mean a removal of the need to have so much downtown parking, but may add to the congestion by people being dropped off in a car, circulating around, all those sorts of things. It goes back to the point, what are we using that space for when it's not car parking? So, for example, there was some work done the other day out about the idea that streets shouldn't be set aside for cars all the time. Mm -hmm. Or there ought to be opportunity that cars in local streets, I'm not talking about major roads or even sub-arterials, of course, that they should be able to be allocated as a priority to things other than cars, even if cars might then go down them at a slow speed. Shared zones, that's been a big thing. Woonoff, wasn't it called, Brian? Woonoff, yes. And how would you describe that? Well, Woodoff is this, this concept that if you remove all of the signs and all of the curves and things like that, and you just create a space that's up for grabs by anyone, that all users, in particular car drivers, are very cautious about how they approach that space. And so it results in much more effectively shared spaces where you're not delineating. So sometimes you might see some of those kind of vintage movies, David, that show the city in the old days, horse and cart or in the early days of motor vehicles. And if you're lucky enough to see some footage of it, you'll see people walking everywhere across the street, jaywalking, taking up space. And, and, and really the motor vehicles and the other the kind of horse-drawn stuff is, is having to, to mix its way through and negotiate its way through. Yet then as we started with more motor vehicles, started to really delineate space, we started saying that, and we need a curb and gutter and we need to, to de dedicate this part for vehicles and, and pedestrians. Now you have to cross at these dedicated crossing points. And so we started to then allow this higher speed and this idea that the majority of the space, particularly on the thoroughfare, if we talk about the footpath and roadway, the majority of that space being dedicated to vehicles, which are very inefficient ways to move people as a rule. So... I think uh, the idea of One Earth is, is to reclaim that mixed space and to sort of say, well, we're going to take away these very strong messages about this is your space and this is your space and try to make it all our space and we have to live together and navigate. I don't really see in the future a role for private vehicles in large parts of city centres. Not only city centres, but perhaps even in the local streets needs some thought too, because a lot of people think that a local road is a road of which you travel as quickly as possible to get to a major road, mm. where in fact it's not. It's, it's an access that you really have to do uh, cognizant of the fact that there could be kids around, there could be a whole range of things. There was a, a paper coming out, it was... Um, put together by uh, How Stuff Works, and they are suggesting or asking to think about why aren't modern suburbs built on a walkable grid? Now, this walkable part is rather interesting. If you look at a, a development site like North Ride in Sydney, it's full of industry and more jobs and so on, but it's got huge blocks. And so if you have to walk from one place to another if there's not a if you're not on the main road you've got to walk up to the main road and then down again with the point that it becomes such a long walk that we haven't designed 
And you've been involved, Brian, in things like curvilinear roads and how that can be disruptive to things like public transport. Perhaps the simple, straight-as-possible road, which has one other great benefit. You can see other traffic coming, and so the road doesn't have to be as wide. You can make opportunity so that you pull over and let someone else pass. Now, there's a lot of roads like that around, but they're on curves. Of all clues, there's one, which, you know, if someone comes beetling around the corner, you're in trouble. But if it was straight, you could see. So straighter roads, no cul-de-sacs unless there's a walkway at the end of them. Is that some of the things we might consider? I think definitely yes, David. I think grids are, are better all around. Um, one of the, the challenges comes in in the market for land and space in residential areas. So if you say, for example, well, you know, let's make the grid smaller. So we'll have slightly more roads, but narrower roads, and we might have smaller lots. Well, this is not all that appealing to a lot of developers. They like to get a decent size of lot. And so you, you might have a better outcome for a community, but fewer developers willing to actually deliver it and take a risk on it. I once saw an excellent paper at a conference that started taking things back to, to basics and saying, you know, at what distance can you see and recognize a person? At what distance can you look into a shop window and understand what's going on? It starts to make a more intimate um, set of um, parameters for a city or for a suburb. You might say, well, you know, let's make things small enough so that when I'm driving along, I, I can recognize someone. I can see their face, know who they are, understand if they're a stranger or a friend. And similarly, if I'm driving in a vehicle, you know, I should be able to look into a shop front and understand what they sell and maybe see people inside. And, and it does suggest then that you have a more neighborhood style approach but certainly uh, at this conference, developers sort of said, well, you know, it's actually hard to make money from these because there's less saleable land in these designs and so that the return has to be higher and then potentially you need to intensify the kind of development on the site to get the money. So it's a bit of a, a challenge, David, but mm. I'm with you. The curvilinear stuff, you know, is still being used, but it, it should have been thrown in the bin in the 70s. I saw it. A comment from a, a female councillor who said that once they began referring to them as limp dick designs, um, many of the male planners stopped designing them that way. <laughs> I wondered why you mentioned female. I thought that sounds, but now I understand. Are they the designers, the male designers who drive Porsches? Yeah, so I think we need to start referring to them as instead of curvilinear or Carl's de Sack to refer to them as limp dick designs. <laughs> Brian, I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much for your time. Welcome, David. And that's Brian Smith, and we are here on Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Alan Zervis, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their continued help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, you can go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City, one word. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.